This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Leah Leibowitz, joined today by the one and only, the luminous tablets deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Leo. So Mark Oppenheimer, Papa, as he's known around these parts, is on the last leg of his whirlwind book tour. So he will be sitting this one out. But today we bring you an interview with Mahjong scholar Annalise Heinz. I was not allowed to be on this interview because I still haven't figured out what Mahjong is, as well as a conversation with Yunit Levy, the premier Israeli news anchor about what's it like to cover politics in a country that has elections every Wednesday. We also have a very special treat following his creed occur this week about why Mel Gibson still gets to make movies. Well, he kind of says some problematic things about Jews. Our favorite friend of the show, actor, writer, thinker, leader, Joshua Molina will be joining us live from Los Angeles. But before we talk to any of these important and scholarly and knowledgeable Jews and Gentiles, we speak of those Jews we love most ourselves. Stephanie, how's, how's it going? Leo, I want to say you've actually never gotten to intro the show before. Never in its six-year history. For some reason, when Mark's out, it's like, okay, Stephanie, <laughs> now you read the intro. And it's That's like, you're right. like the third, you're the third choice. I am the third most responsible adult in a team of three, which is pretty much the story of my life. I'm very grateful to you for letting me do this. It's very funny because you did a great job and you actually host your own podcast, a daily podcast where you get to intro it every day. So if listeners to take one. That's why I do it. <laughs> I'm like the member of the Beatle who left be like, oh yeah, I'll show them that I can also write songs by putting out a song every single day. That's amazing. Well, thank you for your kind words. How, how are you? How's the lovely baby Edith? Baby Edith actually was part of her first Zoom event uh, <gasps> last night. Inadvertently, I was moderating a wonderful talk about the cultural history of Hanukkah with two former unorthodox guests, Jenna Weissman Jocelyn, the wonderful historian, and Marjorie Engel, friend of the show uh, and a great writer. It was through the Museum of Jewish Heritage. It was really, really fun. And then halfway through, Edith woke up from her nap. And so I have my Zoom screen open on my computer. And then right <laughs> underneath it, I have my phone with the monitor app. And I see the timing. I just see this. You see wild thrashing. Yeah, I just basically see that this is this plan is not a good one. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I discreetly turn my video off and my microphone as well. And I know that these two panelists can like totally self-moderate. I mean, right. That's, that's the genius thing about moderating an event with Jews. You could totally just set them up and then leave. <laughs> He will still be talking when you get Leave, back. Totally just log off. Have a bath, have a nap. But it was great because I came back, I turned my computer screen back on, and I had a baby with me. <laughs> so the good news is, like, it's it's Jewish continuity, baby. Like, what are you going to say? You can't bring your baby on the Zoom? Um, and so she— It's a Hanukkah miracle. She hung out with me on the Zoom for for a little bit. And I so I basically got Zoom-bombed by my baby. Right. And no one, no one spoke of anything but your baby probably for the rest of that conversation. It was great. And I think that's actually a good thing to do now like if a call is running long or getting boring or if this episode, like I was going to sort of like show up on this episode with just like her on the Zoom and just assume that everyone would be more excited than they would be to see me. It's like, I'm her understudy. Also, what a great excuse it is. Like whenever a Zoom goes a little too long for your preference, be like, oh, excuse me. My baby just needs, I'm just going to go to my baby. Goodbye. And they're like, your baby isn't even there. Trust me. She's totally in the other room. Totally needs me right now, crying. Wow, here we go. What's going on with you? I mean, is anyone Zoom bombing you? By the way, I've actually never been Zoom bombed, which is like, what is it when like someone comes on and takes over your Zoom with like anti-Semitic stuff? Yes, that, that has happened to me once. It really? It was a scary? No, it was kids. It was more exciting than not. It was one of those moments like you sit through some dreary conference and like do your best to stay awake. And all of a sudden someone comes in and be like, free Palestine. You're like, oh, okay, okay. Well, now, now I guess it's a party. Nothing else of any interest is going on here at Casa Leibowitz. We have survived eight long nights of Hanukkah with amazing, amazing gifts. Hudson, who's really turning into a dude bro, classic rock aficionado, received Donald Fagan's memoir, <laughs> Eminent Hipsters, for Hanukkah. For those of you who do not know the lead creative force behind Steely Dan, which is his new favorite band. I really feel my work here as a, as a parent is that my eight-year-old, the other day he got up in the middle of the night to pee and I catch him standing there while humming, drink scotch whiskey all night long. 
and die behind the wheel, which is like typically acerbic lyrics from a song called Deacon Blues by Steely Dan. But just look at this angelic, cherubic little boy <laughs> singing the most bleak, dark, yacht rock lyrics out there. And my heart just swelled with pride. Jewish continuity, baby. Wow. I also can't believe this is just one of those boring shows where we just all talk about our kids now. I'm glad to be part of that. We, we used to be cool. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews this week contain... I don't want to say the most important item we've ever covered on the show, but this is the most important item we've ever covered on the show. So, Stephanie, break the news. What is happening? First, the supply chain issues came for the Pelotons. And I did not speak out because I do not ride a Peloton. Then they came for the guava mocha frappuccinos at Starbucks. And I did not speak out because I don't drink those. But now the supply chain issues have come home to roost. There's a cream cheese shortage. And we're all screwed. Dun, dun, dun. This is from an article in the New York Times. Zabar's is running low. Tompkins Square Bagels is down to six. Pick a bagel has only a few days supply left. So this is an article in which all these bagel shop operators are saying like, I thought I'd have enough to get me to Sunday, but now I only have enough to get me to Wednesday. And I'm like, we just got through Hanukkah. How is this happening again? It is a reverse miracle. Look, we break this news on a week in which we commemorate the previous most daunting attack on American way of life, Pearl Harbor, which is very comparable to the cream cheese shortage. So let us only echo the famous words of FDR. We have nothing to schmear but schmear itself. So this is actually really interesting. I learned a lot about cream cheese. I will say that I, before reading this article, I had smeared with abandon actually over the weekend. Um, and then I read this article and I felt like very guilty about it. Very wasteful that you totally just took a knife and scraped like three quarters off and then like yeah. wiped it off on the wax paper thing and then threw the whole thing away. So apparently what bagel shops do is they start with like a base, a Philadelphia cream cheese base. And that's like a Kraft Heinz company brand. And then they mix their own, they sort of smear in their own stuff. So it's like there's this this raw product that comes to them. It's unprocessed and unwhipped. And then they basically like whip it up into what we know as the stuff you get at the bagel place. And then, of course, there's the version of Philadelphia cream cheese that you can get at the grocery. So like that's sort of what the product that we know. But there are like dairy supply issues and it is scary. It's getting really scary. Can, can I offer a biblical solution? You know, listeners who are new to the show may not know this, but I, I try to see God's work here in, in human events. I, I try to interpret these, these little signs that Hashem gives us. Can it be that this shortage is here to teach us to repent for our evil ways? And I speak, of course, of the unspeakable tendency to mix all sorts of things into cream cheese that do not belong there. Because you walk into a bagel place these days, there's strawberry cream cheese, there's blueberry cream cheese, there's lox jalapeno, and like there are abominations, there are affronts to God and man, things that should never ever be near <laughs> bagel. And I think Hashem is here to teach us, no, be pious with your cream cheese. Thou shalt mix some scallion, if thou really is in the mood, but other than that, thou nothing in your cream cheese. No? I think you're right. And, and you know, something that's in this article is that the proprietor of Tompkins Square Bagels, which is a very popular shop downtown in New York City, said he's pondering eliminating less popular cream cheese flavors like espresso. Um, and there's also, a, <laughs> there's also a photo of someone there oh preparing God. cookie dough cream cheese. There's a photo of that. Because I was like, oh, what is that delicious, like, gelato? Oh, it's it's cookie dough cream cheese. By the way, J. Crew. Listeners, do do me a big personal favor. If you've ever ordered bagel with espresso flavored cream cheese, please call. All right. I want to hear. I want to hear about this experience. You know, I think that there, there is something like we're all going back to our roots and it seems like our roots are like plain. And I, I hear you like a little, maybe a little scallion, but there's um, Gary Greengrass, our man operating Barney Greengrass right near where you and I live on the Upper West Side. He basically says we don't appreciate what goes into moving things from the source to the store and throughout the country. And there is a world in which you go into the bagel shop if you live somewhere where you're lucky enough to have a a great bagel shop near you. And you're like, I want this. I want this. I want this. And I want it right now. And why is it so expensive? And I think it's true. Like, I think something that 
we've had to contend with this whole pandemic is, is actually realizing where these things come from, that I can't just get everything I want at my fingertips right away. And I think you're right. There's sort of a, a return almost that's being forced on us to these, you know, these more simple ways of life before things could be delivered to you in, in a matter of minutes. It also proves that God has a terrific sense of humor because first he tried an actual plague, like a literal biblical plague. And that clearly didn't work. He's like, Okay, I'll just take their cream cheese. And we're like, not the cream cheese. Why? But I think the interesting thing is like, this is probably going to cause costs to rise. And so we'll we'll be following this story. And I will say, I do have some schmear in my fridge. I actually have a lot of locks. I have a lot of smoked salmon in my fridge. My new thing is to, I call ahead at Barney Greengrass and I'm like, I snapped. I snapped my fingers on this thing just now because that's what I do on the phone call. And I'm like, hey, Gary, get me a pound of sliced Nova smoked salmon and I'll pick it up in half an hour. And that is my life hack. I should, by the way, say that this is the full extent of our celebrity. Like our fame does not extend any further than calling Barney Greengrass and telling Gary we would like to have our food pre-made. That's it. And by the way, anyone can do this. <laughs> right, but I, I feel we're a little bit special when we call us like, hey, it's us. You know, I want to hear from people. I want to hear, is your favorite mocha frappuccino cream cheese out of stock? I want to know what's going on. And I'm going to say, I'm after this, I'm going to eat a bagel. I also want to say that like this article makes me want to stock up on cream cheese. I don't even like cream cheese that much. I want to do like a run on cream cheese so that no one else can get it. Which is exactly how a good Jew thinks. We could be talking about this crisis all day long, but there are other crises brewing. Stephanie, I want to share with you a note that I received from a friend of the show who, for reasons that will soon become obvious, asked to stay anonymous. This gentleman is helping to plan a gap year seminary in Israel. And he wrote to say that the new wave of Omicron-related COVID-19 restrictions is really affecting their program because they were planning a trip to Poland for winter break. But the new EU travel restrictions were making it kind of impossible to them because not all of them had boosters or could sufficiently prove their vaccination or recovery status. So they have been denied permission to visit Auschwitz making them, I believe, the first Jews in history being told like, I'm sorry, you can't go. So first we don't want to go and you tell us we have to go. Now we want to go. You tell us we can't go. This is this is just a lot to take. It's like you don't want to be part of a club that would have you as a member. What is that? Is that does that apply here? And if, and if you can't visit, they'll be like, no, I'm sorry. There has to be social distancing in barracks B. And somewhere Ellie Wiesel's like, wait a minute, that didn't apply in my time. We didn't keep six feet apart. I have pictures to prove it. Well, you know, that's not the only Auschwitzy bit of news this week. Oh, God, things have gotten dark. Auschwitz is so in this week. If you thought Schmear was dark, uh, the Schmear shortage, Fox host Lara Logan, this is a tweet from Oliver Darcy. She says that people tell her that Dr. Fauci doesn't represent science, but represents Joseph Mengele, the Nazi doctor known as the angel of death for performing medical experiments at Auschwitz. This is a quote. I am talking about people all across the world are saying this. So yes, apparently Fauci is now being compared to Dr. Mengele. Um, this is crazy. And I I, I want to say there's a lot of conversation about like, can you call random people not like, oh, you're a this Nazi, you're a this Nazi. Like this idea of do we cheapen the memory of the Holocaust by like calling Dr. Fauci Mengele? What this reminds me all the time is like, we need to get a little bit more creative. Yeah, pick on someone else's tormenting regime. Why, why does it have to be ours? Okay, well, you've done you've done the Nazi thing. Go like fascists also done. Do like you know Francoist, Pol Pot, even Stalinist. Just have a little variety, man. Yeah, you have seventeen different flavors of cream cheese and only one flavor of dictator. Like it doesn't make any sense. It's just they're coming at us from all sides at this point, culturally, historically, and like there's a lot we're facing too much this week. Surely there was a Hungarian or Kenyan or definitely a Belgian that committed some crimes against humanity. How about Dr. Fauci is that? Some evil Belgian. But Stephanie, this has been a really bleak news week. So let's end up on a cheerful note. Could you guess which is the most expensive city to live in on planet Earth? Is it New York? Where, where we reside. Yeah, I was going to say maybe like San Francisco. Is it San Francisco? Is it Tokyo? London. Paris. It is my own beloved hometown 
Tel Aviv, Israel, where everything costs a lot of money. This is according to the biannual report by the Economist Intelligence Unit. Around 10% of all goods in Tel Aviv spiked over the last two years, which is the most anywhere in the world. This is in part because the shekel, our beloved once old, now new again currency, rose precipitously against the dollar. Tel Aviv last year, talk about a Hanukkah miracle. This time last year, we were fifth place in the most expensive cities. This year, we beat number two, Paris. The other number two, for some reason, Singapore. Number four, Zurich. Then Hong Kong, New York, Geneva, Copenhagen, Los Angeles, and Osaka, Japan. Guys, we are the champions. If you are looking for a place to spend you know, $25 on a cup of coffee and a pastry, you no longer have to go to Madison Avenue. Shtorot Rothschild welcomes you with open arms. And to my hometown, I say, Kola Kavod, let's, let's win more of these delightful awards. This is so depressing because I know, if, you know, in the past few years, there have been these protests against rising costs, rising rents, things like that. Has that is that happening there now? I, I think they were actually protesting to make things more expensive. Like, we want the cost to rise. And Tel Aviv was like, okay. And now we won. Stephanie, we set a goal and we met it. <laughs> yeah, there's a contest. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. The rent is too damn high. Like, okay, we'll keep it high. No problem at all. This is a tough week for us, I have to say. This is what happened happens when Mark Oppenheimer is away. I was just thinking, like, you know who's not here today, Mark? You know when the news is bad? This week. <laughs> You're saying it's Mark's fault. Yeah, he's the reason for the shekels inflation. I was being more generous. I said if Mark was here, he would have found some nice piece of news about the fribble going kosher oh, or something I like see, that. Oh, I see, I see. Well, I've actually never seen Mark and Mengele in the same room, so... <laughs> Joshua Molina, the West Wing actor and outspoken Jew on Twitter, wrote a piece for The Atlantic titled Cancel Mel Gibson, asking why is Hollywood still hiring this raging anti-Semite? So Mark called up Joshua Molina and asked him a little bit more about this piece. Hey, J. Crew. Look, like many of you, I am a fan of the charismatic Aussie actor Mel Gibson. I loved him when I was a kid for his roles as Danny Glover's co-star in Lethal Weapon and a few somewhat oh, forgettable hear, sequels. Man? Do you want to hear that sometimes I think about eating a bullet? Huh? Well, I do. I do. I even got a special one for the occasion with a hollow point. Look, make sure it blows the back of my goddamn head out. Do the job right. Gonna die on the toilet, aren't I? Guys like you don't die on toilets. Anyway, I'm here and I'm not planning on going just now. Okay. Let's do it. And also for his turn as Hamlet, which came out into the theaters when I was in high school and became the definitive Hamlet for me. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest of most excellent fancy. But somewhere along the way, I couldn't help but notice that he was also a raging lunatic anti-Semite. Some of his anti-Semitic comments made news. Thursday night, Mel Gibson was arrested on the Pacific Coast Highway with a bottle of tequila in his brand new Lexus, and he was clocked at about 84 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. We're now finding out today he not only leveled some what can only be perceived as anti-Semitic comments to the officer, but also some pretty harassing, sexually harassing comments to a female officer. So there's a lot more to this story. And occasionally, an apology, however half-hearted, might also make the news. The devout Catholic wrote, I am not a bigot. Hatred of any kind goes against my faith. And asked the Jewish community to help in his journey through recovery from alcohol. But recently, Gibson was in the news, not because of anything he said, but because Josh Molina, a favorite actor of ours, called on Gibson to be canceled. Josh Molina is known to many of us for his fine work in West Wing. Because government should be a place where people come together and no one gets left behind. An instrument of good. 
And he's also known to podcast listeners for his work on the long-running podcast West Wing Weekly, which he co-hosted with podcaster extraordinaire Hrishikesh Hirway, also known for his work on Song Exploder. Now, Melina has a new podcast coming out. It's called Chutzpod, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we do, we wanted to pull him into the virtual tablet studios to talk about this article for The Atlantic Magazine, which ran on December 2nd and was headlined, Cancel Mel Gibson. Why is Hollywood still hiring this raging anti-Semite? Josh Molina, what finally moved you to write this piece for The Atlantic saying you couldn't pay me enough to work with Mel Gibson and then basically insisting nobody else work with him either? Why now? Well, as many of my detractors would point out, I'm not sure that I ever have been close to working with Mel Gibson. (laughs) A lot of shots being taken out of my career, and they're all welcome. Please keep them coming. Uh, The truth is I have used social media channels, Twitter in particular, to take shots at Gibson, as I am wont to do. And Jeff Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, reached out to me through a mutual friend. Rabbi Shira Stutman, with whom I'm about to uh, launch a new podcast, and said, do you think he might be willing to write at greater length than Twitter length about this topic? And as with all things, my first impulse was to say no, because it seemed hard. And I don't really like to do anything difficult. That's why I went into acting. It's amazing when you get over 20 or 30 words, how hard it all gets. It's like, Right. All it's... of a sudden, it's like, well, I might have to deal with nuance. <laughs> but I decided to go for it. And I'm happy that I did. It really wasn't even my initial concept. It was Jeff. You correctly point out, and again, I'm quoting from your piece, Gibson is a well-known Jew hater. His prejudices are well-documented. So my question is, what does a guy have to do these days to get put on Hollywood's no-fly list? And, you know, we've been asking that question on the pod for a while now. It seems, dare I say it, that somehow anti-Semitism doesn't count, that you can be the most mild bigot toward other communities and somebody will at least notionally call for you to lose work, but you can actually be a sort of proud flag-flying anti-Semite, whatever flag they fly, they fly it, <laughs> and nobody cares at all. In this day of inclusion and anti-hate speech and great progress, somehow people seem to have lost sight of the fact that Jews are a minority. I think we are about a third of a percent of the world's population. I call that a minority. I think many people, when they see us, do not see a minority. So you've stepped into a debate that we have all the time about what do we cancel? What do we not cancel? What do we listen to? What do we not listen to? You write, put me down as an ardent fan of Roald Dahl, Pablo Picasso, and Edith Wharton. Can't get enough of what they're selling. But these three at least had the good taste to die. So you seem to be saying anti-Semites now dead, no harm in listening to them (laughs) or watching them or reading them. If they have the poor taste to still be alive and inflicting themselves on us, let's give them a rest. How do you draw these lines? Well, okay, I was partially just being cheeky, but if I'm candid in terms of my own approach, it is easier for me to separate the art from the artist when I'm not giving the artist my money to enjoy his or her output. You know, yes, the Roald Dahl estate is getting money when I buy a book of his and so on. But for some reason, it's easier a once remove. I can listen to Wagner because I know Wagner isn't out having a vacation in the Riviera because I bought his albums. So that's just me. I love the idea idea of buying Wagner's albums. (laughs) (laughs) I will also say in terms of this whole thing, I think the piece was done a slight disservice by the headline, which I did not write, which is cancel Mel Gibson, because I think my point is a little bit more nuanced. I'm not super pro cancel culture. If cancel culture means, you know, obliterating and complete erasure of a person, you want to go see Mel Gibson's old movies. Fine. I have no problem with that. We don't have to forget that he ever lived. I'm just making a public call to entities like Warner Brothers Studios, which was founded by Jews to maybe give a second thought as to whether you want to give a high profile job to this guy. And what I'm saying also to anybody who reads this, maybe don't buy a ticket, even though you love the Lethal Weapon franchise. Don't go to it. I'm not really saying, yay, cancel culture. Anybody does anything, let's completely get rid of them. Or I should be the arbiter of who gets canceled and who doesn't. I'm just writing a piece. It's an opinion piece. It's what I think. And as a Jew, I'm deeply offended by the idea that Mel Gibson is still getting work. Where are the people? And again, it's like when it comes to fame and fortune, it was always the second one I was after. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But occasionally I feel like I wish I were had a higher profile because I have the balls to say that's where I draw the line. I'm not going to work with that guy. 
tell me about the back channeling. Like, what are the emails you get? Did you get emails from any Jewish Hollywood friends of yours? Because I've heard there's some other Jews in Hollywood. I've heard you're not the one who said like, Josh, thank you for saying it. I, I don't want to say it, but thank you for saying it. Or conversely, Josh, why are you kicking up storm? You're making the Jews look bad. Like, what's the back channel communication from the other Yidden? Yeah. Good question. I've had very positive feedback, although I will say some of it was along the lines of, way to go, brother. We stand with you. And I'm like, well, other than emailing me, how are you standing with me? In other words, I'm glad to get this feedback, but standing with me in a more visible fashion would be a greater, more tangible endorsement of my points. So I will say I sent the article to many of my high profile friends, Jewish and not, who have big social media followings and said, please read this. If you think it has merit, I'd appreciate it if you shared it. And many of my friends came through. I would say maybe most of them not Jewish. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a... I don't so like, who's the, who's the Jew we can lean on who hasn't come through yet? Is it my I don't want to say it. Oh, I don't want, like, who's... Lest I engage in Lashon Hara, of which I've already been <laughs> accused by having written that piece, I think I will leave names out. You can use your imagination. Is there a high-profile Gentile we should be grateful for? Who's like, really, you know, is Martin Sheen on the ramparts with us? Like, who's... Who's got our backs? Shonda Rhimes retweeted the article uh, with positive words to say about it, which I thought was lovely. She is one of the righteous Gentiles that I would like to acknowledge. It is kind of amazing, though, how many people don't, they don't want Jewish as part of their brand. They're obviously Jewish, but something like this, it, it would seem an easy call, right? Let's not give more money to the person who allegedly, and I think believably, referred to Jews as oven dodgers, right? Like, let's, yeah, right. You know, like, let's not, and yet... There are people for whom kind of allying with the Jews is still a little bit, well, you know, it somehow seems unseemly to them. Yeah. Hey, guys, this one doesn't even have Israel attached to it. Right. That's the that's the hot potato you really can't touch. God forbid you say anything that maybe Israel has a right to exist. I understand you can't touch that with a 10 foot pole. This is just Jews. Can you just come out on behalf of Jews? And he's a heterosexual white Australian. The risk is low. Join us on this one. Join us on this one. I don't think this should be a toughie. But, you know, I think more interesting than the response from my friends and people that know me is the incredible amount of feedback I've gotten, which splits about 50-50 positive and just grotesque, anti-Semitic. Who the F do you think you are? Your career <laughs> sucks. You're just jealous because he's handsome. I was like, yeah, you got me. It's it's all about draw envy. If I just had that draw line, let me shut up. So we here at Unorthodox have, have long been on the record as saying that actually we think the most genius thing Mel Gibson ever did was come up with the term oven dodger because while it's offensive, there's a kind of brilliant specificity to it. Like it takes a couple beats to even know what he's talking about, right? Yeah, this is true. I mean, maybe if he had more like that, he was at least adding something to our lexicon. Credit where credit is due. Credit where it's due. You, of course, had one of the great podcasts ever with West Wing Weekly with our friend Rishikesh Herway. What's the latest jam? You and Rabbi Stutman. In a way, it's a similar model, which is I like to hook up with a partner who is smarter (laughs) than I and more creative and hardworking. And then I'm like the sidekick who makes dad jokes. And so I did that with Rishi, who is much smarter than I and a podcasting genius. And we did the West Wing Weekly. And he knows he knew the West Wing and I was on it, but didn't know so much about it. And we did that together. And that was great fun. And then Rabbi Shira Stutman is a just brilliant, intelligent, funny, creative thinker, mile-a-minute rabbi that I met on a trip to Israel and the Palestinian territories in 2017 with a group called Encounter. We became friends. And then she and her partner, Tim Shovers, had an idea to do a podcast. And together we sort of developed it. They reached out to me. And so the three of us are making this podcast that we're calling Chutzpod. And I think it's good timing. We're launching in January 2022. And right now we already have a teaser out, which you, if you'd like to sample the show, you can find it at www.chutzpod.com. And the Mel Gibson piece, I think, dovetails nicely with it. We're going to try to take on matters of the day, things that would affect somebody who is Jewish, cares about being Jewish, is a lapsed Jew. If you're not Jewish, you have a Jewish friend or you're in an interfaith 
couple, anybody who's interested in. We call them allies, Jewish allies. Allies, indeed, exactly. Fellow travelers, allies, the Jewish. Friends of the tribe, sure. Yeah, exactly. If you have any interest in looking at life through a Jewish lens, we are going to look at the Torah portion of the week and other ancient texts and more modern texts and figure out how being Jewish affects and works with daily life. All I can say is thank God there's eventually a podcast for people interested in like Judaism and Jewish takes on life. It's like it's long <laughs> hey, overdue. I'm not saying we were the first ones there. I'm really, I'm really glad. I'm so glad someone stepped into that void. Thank you. Thank you for paving the way. And then we're happy to, uh, you are the wind beneath our wings. <laughs> a favorite podcast that's not Jewish and a favorite Mel Gibson movie. Mm. Um, Apocalypto. Never saw it. Uh, is my favorite podcast. Just kidding. That's the Mel Gibson movie. <laughs> and maybe this is too easy, but Song Exploder by uh, yeah. Rishi Herway. It, it's so good, even though he's my pal. It's not like I'm plugging something that even needs it. But just when you think he can't get any better, did you hear the episode where they found the old John Lennon art, where the John Lennon estate called him? No, I haven't yet. I, I know. I know I must. He said, you know, my thing is interviewing living musicians about their work. So when I got a call from John Lennon's executors and said, we have this amazing tape. Would you do it? He said, I hesitated, but then I was like, got to do it. And it is, it's right up there with like the REM episode that, or the Fleetwood Mac episode, some of the classic song exploders. You've got to go listen to it. By the way, it's a TV show too on Netflix and there is an REM episode and people should go watch that also. Absolutely. And they should listen to Chutzpah. So www.http colon slash slash dot. Is it com? It is dot com. You got a dot com. Okay. And of course, chutzpah is spelled H-U-T-Z-P-O-D. Got it. Josh Molina, thanks so much for being on Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Jew of the Week is one of the greatest Jews working today. She is Yonit Levy, an Israeli news anchor and the host of an amazing podcast, Unholy. Catch a certain reference there. We love it very much. She co-hosts it with Jonathan Friedland from The Guardian. And it is a wonderful show that brings you news and Jews from all over the world, Israel and diaspora and conversation. I talk to her about covering the news in a country that produces more news than any other country in the world and about hosting a podcast that really tries to take a global look at Jewish life today. Have a listen. It gives me great pleasure to welcome someone I've been watching, reading, and more recently listening to for years. She is the premier, and to my mind, really, I'm I'm sorry, all the others, only newscaster in Israel, the anchor of the main and most watched television show. And by most accounts, I think, is it fair to say Israel's most trusted news person? Weren't you ranked like literally the one Israeli that all other Israelis trust and believe. I think it's fair to say that if I'm in search for a new agent, my friend, I mean, that could that could have worked. Hi, Leo. <laughs> Hello. So I have, a, I have a question for you because I've been watching you on TV where you are quite literally, you know, the voice of God, so to speak. You're, you're the anchor who gives the serious news. You're the person who is sitting and kind of dealing with life and death matters. And here you are now, a host of a new podcast. It's called Unholy which is a title that I absolutely love. You co-hosted with Jonathan Phelan from The Guardian. 
podcasting strikes me as far away from TV news as is possible. How do you make this transition? It was easier than I thought it would be. And of course, the whole podcasting idea is to have it much more intimate and familiar. It's a different vibe, although we do deal with news. We do it a little differently. It's easier for me because Jonathan is there. And Jonathan, who is one of the not only smartest people I, I know, but also one of the most charming, it makes it easy to do that when you're talking to someone who has become your friend, it works fine. You know, when I gave the pilot first to the uh, CEO of Keshet, Avinir, who loved it, he kind of said to me, you know, aren't you a little more opinionated than you are on the news? I said, don't you just mean I'm a little more chatty? <laughs> so I think that is what it is. I want to get back to this, to this point of being the sort of one-woman institution. How hard is it, especially in a country like Israel, in which a lot of us have a lot of opinions, to sit in the TV studio and be that person who doesn't get to say, come the fuck on, this is a lie. <laughs> it's challenging. It's never boring. News in Israel is something that people treat extremely seriously. You know this. I mean, if you live in a country that feels like it's under an existential threat, the news is kind of a survival tool, right? So just to tell your audience, maybe not everyone knows, the news main news broadcast is an hour and a half. It's at eight o'clock. It's prime time. It has like the 22, 23% ratings. And so it is, I think it's still possible for it to be that, you know, serious, objective institution, even though in a country like Israel, every word you utter, and in some cases, every eyebrow you shift from one position to another will be considered something you're not supposed to do. I, I hope that I, I've managed to still hold on to the objective chair. I'm not sure it's always, it can always work, but I, I, I try. I want to kind of linger on, on the nature of the actual work because it's not just that you guys are big stars, it's not just that the news is, is the main thing, but especially in these last two or three years in which you've been blessed with a, a plethora of, of elections. You noticed that, huh? News, news got around. Um, how long was your latest election night broadcast? Um, it was 11 hours. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, I should have actually asked for a salary that depends on uh, the election Over night broadcast. Yep. Just this was my ninth <laughs> election night broadcast. If this was a normal country, it, my career would lasted 36 years as an anchorwoman just by that uh, standard. Yeah, it's long, <laughs> you know, and, and we never have a result. It just takes a, a long time. Really, it's been even through Israeli standards. I think these two years have been pretty insane. Emotionally. How do you prepare for that? How do you how do you walk into the studio being like, I'm going to have to say a lot of things like, well, it's too early to tell. Look, you asked before about the earlier about the the seriousness of the news. The election I broadcast is a television event, right? You kind of need to understand that this is now, I don't like doing this a lot, but it's also a little bit of an entertainment, right? People have to stick with you for 11 hours. And as you say, you don't usually get the results or not completely the whole picture. So you know, you have the 30 politicians coming in, maybe surprising to you, Liel, but politicians like to talk. And you have the 30 correspondents coming in and you have people to talk about, about what can happen or can't happen, you know, the different scenarios. It's, it's surprising how fast that those 11 hours fly by. It really is. And a lot of coffee and chocolate. <laughs> and I'm not telling you any more trade secrets. That's all I got for now. Now you've made a transition into podcasting and the show is very charming for many reasons. One of which is that the premise is almost perverse. Right? It's a it's a British journalist and an Israeli anchorwoman talking about Israeli politics in a way that feels completely captivating, even to someone who's not living in Israel and isn't very deeply studious about the ins and outs of Israeli politics. When you were kind of like kicking around that concept, like did you did you have a moment which is like who would care about any of this? First of all, I mean the I think the premise of it was to do not only Israel from the inside and out person living in Israel, me and outside and diaspora, Jonathan, but also to talk about the Jewish world and the connection between them. And I think what we started out, we, we thought to ourselves, you know, people would, news junkies would listen to this uh, if they care about what's happening in Israel and they want to understand. And, and the Jewish community abroad would listen to this because they want to hear about the daily life in Israel and we want to hear about the daily life in diaspora. What happened was a little bigger than that. And I don't want to sound, you know, too pompous, but the, the realization that people really like that conversation and they kind of need to listen to that conversation, which sometimes sounds like a Shabbat dinner between two cousins, right? And just that connection in two communities, let's admit, I mean, Jonathan talks about how Jews from Mars need to start talking to Jews from, from Venus, uh, taking off that, that famous title. 
just that connection meant something to a lot of people in Israel and out. And as you said, I think that Israel, people have so many strong emotions about it. In many circles, it's become this trigger word. And here we just, we just talk, right? It's not a minefield. Obviously, we don't agree on, uh, on everything, but it's the conversation is possible. We don't gloss over anything. We say it pretty much as it is, but people can actually, you know, listen to it. And I think that is, that is really important. You yourself are, are something of a, of a wandering Jew, right? Both your parents, if I'm not mistaken, are immigrants. And you yourself had grown up, at least I know about a stint in Chicago, maybe one in L.A. Where, where, else, where else did life take yeah. you? Chicago and L.A. I went to the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish Day School in Chicago. Shout out to them. Did an excellent job or a horrible job, depending what you think of me. And that is where life took me. I think that since then, when we came back to Israel, uh, my father was working for the Israeli consulate in Los Angeles in Chicago. When we returned still very much in, in American schools, and still I stayed very connected to uh, diaspora, and it meant a lot to me to keep that connection, also branches of the family who live in the U.S., and that kind of stayed with me. If I did a documentary project in, in our network, it was about the Jewish-American community, and that's why this, this project was so important to me. Usually when, when you talk about the thorny issue of, of Israel-Diaspora-Jews relationship, here's what you'll hear. If you talk to an Israeli you're very likely to hear something like, oh, we're heading for a divorce. These people are intermarrying. These people are, you know, becoming increasingly, you know, anti-Israel. These people don't stand a chance. And then if you talk to someone in the diaspora, mainly in the American Jewish community, you'll hear something like, oh, we're headed for a divorce. Uh, these people in Israel, they don't care about us. You don't care about religious pluralism. They're increasingly nationalistic. They are increasingly self-centered. They have no real interest in getting to know our way of life. Now that you're doing a podcast, which is literally the embodiment of this conversation and sounds very different from these doomsday voices, this is an easy question. So, you know, feel free to be very quick about it. What is the state of uh, Israel-Diaspora relationship? I think there's a lot of love left there, I, I have to say, and that's what I feel. And even in the sense that the thing that surprised us, first of all, I have to tell you that a man walked up to Jonathan in London and, and told him rather emotionally that this podcast helped him start up a conversation with his brother that grew so much apart. The brother lives in Israel and suddenly they started listening to the podcast and they could sort of talk through their feelings. Look, there is a divide that we can't deny, but the way to deal with it, what can be more Jewish than just talking and talking about it and realizing that if you see life through the lens of what it means like to be a Jew in diaspora and what it means for a Jew in diaspora when he sees life in Israel, just to give you like the, the smallest example, okay? When we were talking about the Purim episode and Jonathan was going on and telling about how his son was traveling on, you know, public transportation during Purim to his Jewish school dressed as Kim Jong-un and everyone was staring at him. And you just as an Israeli, I have Israelis <laughs> to this day coming up to me and saying, we didn't realize it was like this. It's a simple story. But it makes you understand that it isn't Purim for everyone else in diaspora, is it? You know, and just that, and even through the war in Gaza, where I was like running from the bomb shelter and back and recording the podcast. And on the other hand, you had Jonathan listening to this and realizing this, but also telling me how Israel is mirrored in diaspora and in the world at large. So you have so much to talk about. Again, I'm not saying we're going to agree on everything, but the conversation has to happen. Uh, so I think that the relationship is not as bad as you you were stating. I really, really hold on to that. I happen to to agree with you also, but I also want to hear your opinion about America writ large, because you've been covering us in particular for a very long time. You were dispatched here after 9-11 uh, and did really amazing, amazing television work. You, you did a really good documentary about American Jews. You've been watching us, right, for a while. How are we doing? I mean, it's really easy from the inside to kind of get a very grim view of where things stand. But when you look at, at American society, American Jewish society, what, what is it that you see? First of all, an amazingly interesting group. There's this moment in which Naftali Bennett was sitting in front of uh, the Jewish community. I think it was hosted by the Jewish Federations of North America. And he was saying, you know, what I learned from you is that you don't label people right? You treat everyone as equal. And I was, I, I kind of smiled at that. I said, I'm not sure that's true, but it's the way in which we see Jews in, in diaspora. And when I listen to your program a lot, I learn a lot and it's, it's, it's fun for me to go through it. I think that there is so much that really binds us together. I'm sorry, I'm sounding a little like a Hallmark card. I didn't mean to, but I really believe that there is. How dare you be optimistic <laughs> on this show? 
I just think there's so much that binds us. And that is what we we should focus on. Not You don't need to gloss over the problems. You don't need to gloss over the fact that there is a, a divide, a political one and a cultural one and a religious one. But you just got to keep talking. For the benefit of, of our listeners who are soon uh, to discover you and, and become your fans, could you chart out, are there kind of, not just, you know, differences, oh, I think X and he thinks Y, but can you see kind of, as we like to say in academia, systemic differences that stem from the fact that you're an Israeli and he's a Brit? Is it noticeable to you sometimes? You'd hear him say something and say, oh, well, of course, because your experience is X, Y, Z. You know, we had a fierce, our fiercest argument. Do you want to guess what that was about? When do Jews give Jews gifts? That was the, we almost stopped doing the podcast together because he claimed that you give gifts Hanukkah. And I said that that's just because, you know, it's close to Christmas and you guys need to emulate the whole Christmas thing. And Israelis give presents at Rosh Hashanah and Pesach. And he called that blasphemy. So I'm just saying (laughs) the fact that we're still talking is surprising to me. And besides that, there are different views, even stemming from the fact that I'm sitting in Tel Aviv and he's sitting in London. I don't want to give away too much because I want a lot of people to listen to it. But I think you'll, in an episode that usually has one big Israeli story, one big diaspora story, and then we choose our mensch of the week and our chutzpah word of the week, you're always going to have something we slightly disagree on. And so now that you've had a taste of this, of this wonderful medium and this wonderful topic, and now that you've done 11 hours straight, four times in a row, news broadcast, last question, does this inspire you to to kind of rethink the future of your career? Are you thinking now, you know what, TV is nice, but I don't want to sit through another 11-hour all-night fest. Like, I, I want to do this because it's more fun. And I could do it now. I could be Jon Stewart and quit at the height <laughs> of my fame and do my own show on Apple TV because I can. Um, after this conversation, I'm actually rethinking the past of my career as well. So I don't, you know, I'm not. <laughs> like it's, I'm, it's I'm, been a series let me, of terrible let me do mistakes. That. Let, me, let me do that for a few days and I'll get back to you about what I want to do when I grow up. I just need to, you know, run through the whole thing. Well, whatever it is you choose to do, I hope there's a lot more unholiness and a lot more podcasting in it. Uh, the show is an absolute delight. Yonitavi, thank you so much for being our guest. Well, thank you so much. Our Gentile of the Week is Annalise Hines. She's a professor at the University of Oregon, and she has gotten deep into Jewish culture, perhaps inadvertently, uh, with her latest book, Mahjong, A Chinese Game and the Making of Modern American Culture. Mark and I chatted with her about the way the game of Mahjong came from China to America and how it rooted itself within the Jewish community. It was a really interesting conversation. She also tells us what Mahjong is, of course, for those who have not heard of it, and why it remains so popular even today. Annalise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. So I have to say, when I picture someone who sort of like writes scholarly books and articles about Mahjong, I picture someone who's a little bit older. Is that wrong to say? (laughs) I think that there is a really strong association with Mahjong as attached to older women today. And that's really because of the generation who forged what we now call American Mahjong that became such an important part of Jewish American women's culture in the years after World War II. But when they were forging that culture, that was really led by actually mothers of young children. So people a little bit younger than I am now. <laughs> so how did you first discover Maj, as I know people are calling it these days? Wait, 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 back up. Are people calling it that these days or is that just what Stephanie calls it? <laughs> Good question. That's really a regional nickname. So people do call it Maj, particularly, again, specific to American Mahjong culture, which is a unique culture in in the many Mahjong cultures around the world. So Mahjong, how do you, how does this sort of enter your life and, and what is it? So I came to Mahjong when I was living in Southwestern China for a year before beginning my doctoral work at Stanford. I lived in Yunnan province and taught English to graduate students there. And I really hadn't played Mahjong before. I learned from a friend whose grandfather had taught her the very basic Chinese version when she was a child. He was from Shanghai. And 
I immediately gravitated toward the sensory aspects of mahjong. Tiles are beautiful. They feel kind of have a unique weight in your hand. The way that they they sound and look and feel is all quite captivating. But beyond that and beyond seeing how people were playing it as part of everyday life in China, across generation, across gender, it really was a part of the fabric of daily life. I was interested in, in that as an aspect of Chinese culture, along with many other aspects of Chinese culture I was learning about while living there. But it was my aunt who posed the question about this connection between a Chinese game and Jewish culture. She had grown up in a strongly Jewish part of Denver in the years after World War II. A lot of her friends, mothers, had played when they were kids. And now, as a middle-aged woman, a lot of her friends still played. And to be clear, is your aunt Jewish or just a fellow traveler? Right. She was a fellow traveler with many Jewish friends. And you're not Jewish. And I'm not Jewish. So you're neither Chinese nor Jewish. The leading scholar of Mahjong today <laughs> is a Gentile ally. That's fabulous. That's just amazing. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I think Stephanie thought you were Jewish when we booked you. I'm going to be, I'm going to well, be clear about read, this. Well, I did read, I read your piece in Tablet and sort of assumed, but I you know the title of your book is obviously, you know, more broadly about, about Mahjong, but I will say, you're, I think you're putting the tile in Gentile. <laughs> oh, Annalise, I'm going to let Stephanie take you back to the serious stuff, but do you kind of want to be Jewish after doing all this research? <laughs> you know, one of the wonderful things that has come out of the research of this project is getting to talk to so many different people and oral histories were a really important part of my research. And because of the way the book covers time over the 20th century and because of the where different archival sources existed or didn't, I ended up focusing my oral history research with Jewish American subjects and especially Jewish American women. And it's been really a gift to be able to, again, cross another social boundary and be welcomed into predominantly Jewish communities and spaces. Certainly, I have been able to learn about Jewish culture and other contexts of my life, but to really be able to speak with people on a very personal level about their Jewish identity is not something that I had gotten to do before. And that was, uh, it was really an honor. I appreciate it. I think a lot of people don't necessarily know how the game made the jump from, you know, recreation in China to sort of recreation in the parts of Brooklyn and New York, you know, like this sort of these Jewish areas in the post-war period. So can you explain to us how that happened? Well, it's not a simple answer. The very brief version is that the roots of that transition are in the 1920s, actually, when it is this enormous international fad driven by an American market. And that's when Mahjong becomes a part of American culture writ large. It dies out as this huge fad by the end of the 1920s. But in the early 1930s, a group of Jewish women were among the people who had continued playing the game but this group of women gathered together with a goal to standardize and revitalize the game. And this is the seed of the National Mahjong League. The National Mahjong League is the group responsible for creating over the next several decades and continuing to nurture and shepherd a particular form of the game that is unique, that is quote, national mahjong, or what is today most commonly known as American mahjong. And as you wrote, they actually got together in a hotel ballroom. And basically, as I gather, this woman, Dorothy Meyerson, was that her name? Basically bullied all of these other Jewish women into accepting her house rules as the national rules of the game. Is no, that I, will, I will not accept that <laughs> characterization. Could we just leave it at that? I like that story. Are you going to texture it with your subtleties and your scholarly, you know, actual finer points of truth? They certainly gathered in a ballroom as they're launching kind of public meeting and over 200 people came from all over the New York region. They gathered in, in a hotel, an Essex house right off Central Park, actually, which is still there, this glorious Art Deco hotel. And Dorothy Meyerson was a really key figure in creating National Mahjong. She had her own business that she had been developing and the National Mahjong League really ended up building on and adopting a lot of her core rules, but I, w I will not accept that she was <laughs> bullying the crowd into, into accepting that. Instead, what you actually have from the record of that meeting is, is a really raucous 
excited crowd where people are shouting things out about, you have to deal with this, or you got to standardize that, or you got to rule about this, you know, these warring kind of table rules. And so there was a lot of audience participation. And that (laughs) remains true. I mean, the league today gets, you know, a lot of feedback and questions from its members, even as the league itself has changed significantly over the decades. Now, what was the role of the Air Force wives? Because they had their own version, right? And why Air Force, not Navy? What's going on there? So they do have their own version still today, played on Air Force bases. Wait, still today? Oh, yeah. The Air Force Force wives version is still a distinct dialect of Mahjong? Absolutely. And it's Air Force officers' wives and now Air Force officers' spouses, but got it. also mostly wives. (laughs) I definitely want to interview the man in that league. But anyway, go ahead. They started in the war years on an Air Force base called Wright-Patterson. And so their variant is known as Wright-Pat Mahjong. And Dorothy Meyerson was involved a little bit in that history too, in that one of her businesses was selling Mahjong sets. And so she ends up selling sets to Wright Pat players as well. You know, it works for Air Force officers' wives on these bases in ways that it does in many other contexts where it is a powerful way to get to know people in these communities that are being frequently uprooted and remade in different contexts. You know, one of the things they say is you can go anywhere around the world to one of these bases and you'll know other people are playing this kind of mahjong and you can connect with them. And we see that again in lots of different variations of mahjong around the world. It becomes this connector within a community or group. So how much awareness is there in China specifically of the sort of the ways this game has sort of manifested in other areas? I mean, is there, do they know that this is being played all over the world? Well, by the mid-1920s, in the midst of this massive international fad, it really changes the meaning and popularity of the game in China as well. And so it's by the end of that decade that it becomes known in China and around the world as, quote, the national game of China. Before this, these boom years, it was really one of many mostly male gambling games, and it was not widely known out of a few major urban centers, although it was spreading. And that's really and that really changes in the 1920s, and then and now, of course, is is truly national and has lots of different regional styles in China. By and large, I think people are aware that mahjong is this you know kind of representative game connected to Chinese culture that people do play it around the world. I think most people do not know how differently it's played and that, in fact, there are more than 40 variations of Mahjong that exist today around the world, some of which, including definitely the National Mahjong League's game, would not necessarily be recognizable in the way that it's played, even though almost all the time people are playing with sets that are very recognizable across different versions of the game. It occurs to me, we should ask you, do do you play Mahjong and do you like it? And are you good at it? Yeah. (laughs) And is it all luck or is there some skill? Because I was watching some online videos. It looked pretty luck-based. So if you're playing, I don't know what kind you're referring to, but there is a version, a digital Mahjong version that's basically solitaire. It's a matching game that uses images of Mahjong tiles. It's not at all the same game. Got it, Um, okay. The four-person game, mostly played in person, is mostly a game of skill, but there is always luck involved. And there are lots of debates over, you know, if you play with certain tiles, for example, joker tiles in the league's version, you're introducing a little bit more luck. But what the balance between luck and skill is to make the best version of the game is always subject to debate. And you love it. You're wicked good at this. I appreciate Mahjong. I um, have won a couple of games, <laughs> but but I don't play regularly enough, although I do love it, to have anywhere near the kind of skill necessary to, to really compete against people who are truly mavens of the game. I know that you're a historian and not a contemporary, you know, anthropologist of this, but is there a world championship of this? Is there a, is there a Gary Kasparov of Mahjong? And who is, she? I assume it's a she. And when are we going to get the Queen's Gambit of, of the Netflix yeah. show about Mahjong? Because I could see it. We definitely need some more Mahjong media. You know, in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, there was a few Mahjong scenes. There should be more media representations of Mahjong. And every time that there have been, like, especially in most recently Crazy Rich Asians, it sparks 
this resurgence of interest in the game and people wanting to learn and and learning across, again, kind of variation lines. And there is a world championship and there is a, an acknowledged a Gary Kasparov of Mahjong. There are tournaments, but there are different tournaments because these, again, variations actually aren't the same game, right? This isn't like international poker where basically if you're playing poker in one place, you're basically yeah. playing this. Yes, or chess. These are truly different ways of playing the game. And so there are international tournaments that generally play the, quote, standardized Chinese version. But again, there are also lots of tournaments within different variations. And so tournament culture didn't really exist for most of the 20th century. But in the late 20th century and today, it took off in the United States as well. It was probably like urban legend. Like they were probably at Grossinger's saying, you know, that woman, have you heard about like Bess Goldfarb over at Kutcher's? She will she will kick your ass. I mean, there's probably like Catskills urban legends about certain women. Oh yeah. And there were definitely actually at Grossinger's Mahjong classes and smaller tournaments. You know, they weren't like these big international traveling tournaments or things like that, but they absolutely had tournaments as part of their event roster. We're going to get the best mail on this, by the way. Like, we're going to get so <laughs> yeah. much good mail from people who are like, oh yeah, I no, my aunt Estelle was the Maj champion of Grossinger's. That actually is really funny, Mark, that you say Estelle, because I was away with my, um, my husband's family, my in-laws, and they play Mahjong on vacation. And so I decided that I needed a Mahjong name and I spent the whole weekend like post saying like, what should my name be? And Estelle was actually what I, I landed on. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, Mahjong is very, very hard. It's very soothing. I love the click of the tiles. And so I have to ask, are there a lot of young people playing Mahjong today? Because I can see it being the kind of like retro chic thing that young people would take up today. Yes. And part of it is because of that aesthetic aspect that you've just brought up. And particularly, you know, there is an enjoyment of mid-century modern and earlier forms of plastic that are people generally call all Bakelite. But just to be clear, this is actually, these are not made of Bakelite <laughs> in an actual term, but in the general popularized term of old plastic, all being called Bakelite, they are. And so there's, there's certainly are young people playing the game. And in fact, the game is, including in the American variations, is diversifying. And it's also true that because of the way that many people's lives rhythms are today, especially in the context of more people, if, the, if you have young children, it's very common to have both parents working in the workforce. Women have many more options in terms of career and overall life structure at the same time that people face increasing kind of financial pressures that actually result in lowered leisure time. Work has crept into our daily lives in a, in a new way. Parenting is way more intensive than it was in the 1950s. Parenting has definitely crept into my daily life in a very big way. <laughs> yeah. Like there's so much parenting in my daily life. <laughs> And teach them mahjong. Mark, you have enough kids to fill a whole mahjong league, I think. With a spare. No, I mean, well, one person is the umpire, actually. Before we let you go, Annalise, um, since you're a Gentile of the Week, which is a, a very, you know, honored, exalted role on our show, we always offer the Gentile of the Week the opportunity to ask a question of us about Judaism. You spent so much time immersed in Jewish sources, primarily Jewish women's sources. Was there anything that you were curious about or that you didn't understand about Jews or Jewish culture that we could clarify for you right here on the show. And I should say that this is a safe space. You can ask us anything. One question I have that I'll, that I'll actually pass on from another interviewer. I had a wonderful interview with someone who, when I was talking about the ways that Mahjong as a form created barriers as well as bridges and mm. in its evolution, it has meant that as much as there has been this really exciting cultural growth in these various forms, it also means that it is evolving away from a kind of shared form of the game in its variations. And the interviewer said, you just explained modern Judaism. <laughs> I was struck by that. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were about that in terms of that tension between the importance and beauty of cultural evolutions and then the losses that come with that as well. I love that, you know, the, the sort of the Mahjongification of American Judaism or the the Jewification of Mahjong. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. It's like it's like they're different denominations of Mahjong, mm -hmm. you know, that these are each their own their own communities. And the far and the more they evolve in different directions, the less they have in common. And that certainly is something that's happened in America where you have, you know, Orthodox Jews of various levels of observance and rigor 
and different traditions. And then you have conservative Jews and reformed Jews and you have secular Jews. You have Jews for whom their only religious connection is entirely cultural. And so it, it would be Mahjong and maybe the food they eat as they play Mahjong. And I think that temperamentally, I'm someone who feels the loss of tradition more than I feel the kind of excitement of cultural evolution. I'm an, an old soul that way. I think everything, I mean, culture basically peaked in 1996, as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> it, just, it just happens to be the case that, you know, the day I graduated from college was the high point of culture in all of its in all of its forms. But I think intellectually, I can appreciate that, you know, there's also a kind of beauty in all of these different communities taking Judaism or Mahjong or whatever and running with it, taking the ball and running with it. And I think that that's great. I think that taking something and making it your own is also very American. I mean, ultimately it's American, right? Like you come to a place where there's maximal freedom and the state doesn't impose religions on you or or leisure games and people can do Parcheesi, they can do Mahjong, they can do chess, and then they can take Mahjong and do anything they want with it. And that's that's what also people have done with religious denominationalism. At the same time, I'm a chess player. So maybe that, and then maybe that says something. Like, uh, the, game, the game that I play most is the one that has one set of rules that's basically stayed the same for, you know, half a millennium or and shows no signs of evolving and has been like highly codified and centralized. So maybe that's like my, my sort of fascist soul. I don't know. <laughs> Annalise Hines, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. Thank you so much. It's really an honor. Mazel tovs. It is now the moment in the show where we share love and congratulations with people who are celebrating a bit of a milestone. And I want to go first this week because my mazel tov is to designer, shoe mogul, and former guest of this show. How many people can you say that about? Stuart Weitzman, who has come to the rescue like a true mensch of the beleaguered National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. It's a wonderful place. I visited it and loved it. They were having some financial difficulty, and Mr. Weitzman bailed them out and has made it possible for this cool museum to remain in operations. Stuart Weitzman, you still don't make anything in my size, uh, but if you ever want to make a men's 14 and a half, I promise you I'll seriously consider buying a pair just for this. Stephanie, what do you got? My Mazel tov goes to former U.S. Representative Gabby Giffords, who became a bat mitzvah at Temple Haverim in Tucson, Arizona. Mazel tov, a simman tov, a simman tov, mazel tov, mazel tov, simman tov. I did that right? And uh, a copy of the newest Jewish encyclopedia, America's hottest bat mitzvah gift, is in the mail on its way to you. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Liel Leibowitz, together with Stephanie Butnick. And not this week, but usually Mark Oppenheimer. Our executive producer is Josh Cross, who edits the show, along with producers Robert Scaramuccia and Quinn Waller. Our managing producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader. You could follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and whatever other social media platform you like. If you forgot to buy Hanukkah presents and really have a lot of splaining to do, get some unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Chaim Baruch of the Chabad of the West Side. We come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick. <laughs> <laughs>